News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn here with Professor Christina Greer on a family vacation in Arizona. <laughs> Hello. It's totally National Lampoon's vacation over here. <laughs> Hi there. <laughs> and Alex Brooklyn in Manhattan. Hello. Are you having a baby right now? Uh, I'm not currently having a baby, but they say soon. Maybe even sooner than later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, there could be some news in this episode. So with that, we're going to talk a bunch about the mayoral race. The final debate is done. Early voting is here, although no one's really voting yet, which is ominous. But before we get to all that, as this last debate was happening, there was a great crosscut to this scene in the village where uh, concerned residents gathered to talk about community safety and Washington Square Park, and Alex was there. Um, fill our listeners in on what was happening as uh, the candidates were clashing about who was going to keep the city safe. So the ongoing saga of the battle for Washington Square Park, one would ask, like, why is this important when we have a lot to talk about with the whole city? It's kind of important because it's always been a bit emblematic of the way in which, you know, police are interacting with kind of changing cultures, especially in the village where it's a hub for uh, young people, um, especially LGBTQ plus, to find each other, even if they live in Queens or far out in Staten Island. And it's kind of always served as that. Um, the demographic, however, has changed. And dealing with that policing-wise has always been kind of interesting. And as sort of the old guard of residents get older and crotchetier, they have more and more of an issue with younger people coming in. You kind of saw that in the 90s with older white affluent gays taking issue with younger black and brown kids who went to the Hetrick Martin school, um, kind of, you know, hanging out in the park. So this right now feels really reminiscent of my youth in the 90s when I lived in uh, Greenwich Village. Basically, the line had been, the line for this community meeting was in a church, Our Lady of Pompeii, and it went around the block. A couple street photographers looking to preserve the amplified sound and sort of party element of the park had tweeted it out, had Instagrammed it out. So there was a lot of people waiting to get in, but aha, they knew not the trick of getting there early like the olds do in um, the village. <laughs> and uh, there were many, many olds. I would say, that the line was primarily over 60. And as they got in, were they there to talk about, like, uh, serious crimes and assaults and robberies and things like that? Or was a lot of this about noise, partying, and uh, drug use? Well, so what's interesting about this whole thing is that it was conflated. Um, there generally isn't so much hubbub around community members coming to complain about hardcore drug use or assaults. But 
It was almost as though skateboarding and amplifying sound were hidden inside the excusable nugget of violent crime and drug use when they are two pretty separate elements in the park. Stephen Hughes was there, who's the commanding officer for all of downtown Manhattan. And he opens with this backstory, uh, alleging that five officers were injured one of the nights that they tried to close the park at a new curfew, um, three from throwing bottles, one being hit with a garbage can, and one, he said, broke his hand, affecting an arrest, whatever that means. So Stephen Hughes later is explaining why the NYPD and the six precincts have brought this meeting together, and it's to kind of gauge, supposedly to gauge the temperature of the community on what they want to do about the curfew and policing. But the more people talk, the more they seem to veer away from any talk of the actual northwest corner, which is where we described last week a lot of the hardcore drug uses. And what they talk about primarily is the amplified sound and the skateboarding. You know, (laughs) (laughs) that is flashing me back. Like Bill Castro, who is the commissioner of the Parks Department made an unfortunate quote where he said, you know, he's going to bring in like family planning and kind of take some of the sections of the park back that usually have homeless or severely drug addicted people sleeping there and, you know, do some family programming. But unfortunately he used the word like, we're going to take it back and for good people come normal people. Gail Brewer is heavily involved, but very, very hesitant to comment on anything around noise complaints and only is there to, like, help with drug treatment. So just to cross cut for one second, this is happening as Andrew Yang is at the Merrill debate, which we're going to get to in a minute, talking about how, uh, hey, I know mentally ill people have rights, but, like, don't forget that the rest of us do, too, and we don't want to have them everywhere, in effect. Right. So, I mean, the corner of the park where it's mostly chemically dependent, those crimes, some of the violent crimes, some of the assaults that have happened in the park seemed to be conflated with children and skateboards. You know, one community member said, you know, we need to allow the cops to do whatever necessary to get skateboards out of kids' hands. Like, that person's priority was the skateboard. More and more as people you know, talked about the um, effluvia, as one guy called it, that had eked out of the park onto the side streets. He was talking about the drug addicts and he was talking about violent crimes. But somehow it would be like, but we need to give carte blanche to the cops, period, to allow them to arrest skateboarders and protesters. I mean, Stephen Hughes also made this connection. What do I do when people say no? when we ask them to leave. So it just seemed like they're asking the community for support and permission, asking them to call their local officials to police the park. And most of the people in the community board meeting were the 60 plus residents of the village. And they want the amplified sound gone. And they seem very willing to fuse that issue with the more um, violent crime that is happening in the Northwest Park. So, so Alex, if uh, the purpose of this meeting, according to Hughes, was to get a queer consensus about the closing of the park, right? As they've had this curfew and then step back on the curfew, 
Did he get that at least from the part of the community, the 60 plus folks who were represented at that meeting? Yeah, they all want the curfew to be at 10 p.m. and they all want to support police officers in whatever they need to do to make the noise stop. One woman who started with the uh, unfortunate violent crimes that she's been seeing around ended with, we also need to sleep so the amplified sound has to go. And to be very clear, I live in the village. I walk through the areas of the park where there are a lot of skateboarders and there are a lot of dance parties. I'm eight months pregnant. I walk through there with a friend with an infant. There are a lot of children. There's a lot of people at 10 p.m. perfectly safe. It is a very specific part of the park, and it is a very specific and very clear reason why there are some uh, violent assaults going on. Alex, can you just explain to us how and why did this become a major story? Just because I feel like this isn't the only park that's kind of had, you know, curfews and different groups of people and some tensions with noise and some safety concerns, real or perceived. Why all of a sudden is Washington Square Park something that has, has I'm not going to say it's dominated the news, but it's definitely been in the news for quite a few weeks. And it seems like elected officials are getting involved. Candidates are weighing in on the issue. Like, I just feel like this is a story that I looked up and it was a massive story. And I'm just sort of like, I don't I don't get it. Like, where did it come from? Well, Why? Like, OK, so Liz Crotty was there because she lives in the village and she's running for Manhattan DA. And we've had her on the show. And she's like, I've seen a drug deal every single day that I've been there. Now, when Co- Is, didn't she get endorsed by the Post? Oh, I believe she did. I mean, I would have asked. So, I mean, that, like that statement to me, that tracks. And and speaking of the post here, right? Right. But, I mean, she's not wrong. In the northwest part of the park, uh, and during COVID, there was a lot, a lot of hardcore drug use and people who went seemingly just unmolested. And I can only imagine that that happened because those people just didn't make that much noise. And... It became a big story because New York, as there were no high schools and none of the kids had anything to do for, you know, so many months, as people started coming out of their homes, the kids, the skateboarders started hanging out in the park as they used to do long ago. And photographers started flocking there. And now with Pride, you have a lot of people coming to visit the city. So it just has become this very like loud, happy hub of energy. From what I see, I, I got a note that that you have this happy hub of energy and people congregating there and celebrating, and there's drug use and the dark corner in the Northwest, like always, and this all seems fine. And then the New York Post puts this on the cover and says, "You know, welcome to Amsterdam." And boom, a couple days after that, like suddenly the NYPD is out in force, like we saw over the George Floyd summer. Like you must leave this park if you do not leave, you are subject to arrest. And it really did seem to be in reaction to the tabloid story, which I think is what drew in a lot of the politicians and the people running for office to start speaking out about this and and made it into that narrative. I also think that the tabloid story, the post story, gave the in for a lot of the older residents to actually get police involved in what would otherwise be Mm -hmm. incredible misdemeanors like, you know, skateboarding and and amplified sound. So. Chrissy, the debate that happened, the final debate, at the same time this was uh, this was occurring and the, the olds were there, a lot of this seemed to revolve around law and order and public safety and uh, differing visions of that. 
And you wrote that there was a uh, Zen Eric Adams. He's <laughs> definitely not the one we had on our podcast. I don't think it's the one we're going to have on Mayor. But, like, how did that play out? Did it change anything? And how are things looking in this home stretch? Yeah, well, you know, Harry, I, I told you before, if I were Eric Adams' campaign manager, I would just put him in the closet until June 23rd and just keep it pushing, right? Because less is more with Eric. And I think... The Fort then, Lee closet or the townhouse closet? Which closet right, are we talking right. about? <laughs> the Jersey closet, the Brooklyn co-op closet, the Brownstone closet. You can name a closet. He's got closets, closets, closets. <laughs> so, but in all seriousness, you know, he knows. I mean, this is the thing. He's not only a politician, he's a public servant. He's been in the game for a long time. Unlike his friend Andrew Yang, who I'll get to in a second, he knows. It's like, let me just keep my mouth shut. You know what? Crime and public safety are on the minds and hearts of folks. Let me not while out. Let me not show them, you know, that I can get angry. Let me just smile and talk directly into the camera and let them know that this yoga and meditation has been working. And Eric Adams is Eric Adams. And I've been, Eric Adams has been writing in his journal. Eric Adams has been thinking about public safety. Eric Adams speaks in the third person because Eric Adams knows that Eric Adams is ready for this job. That's who showed up. And then Andrew Yang, who I said in the Times when I was grading the, the candidates, is a little bit of Jekyll and Hyde because you can't have a campaign of six months or when you think about the presidential campaign, hey, guys, hey, dudes, hey, it's awesome, it's cool, I'm like the fun times guy, I'm going to be like the awesome mayor, yeah. And then you come and your last debate, you're angry. He went after Eric constantly. And I think for some voters, they may have been a little confused because – this was a new Andrew that they hadn't seen, hadn't even seen real glimmers of, maybe once or twice if you were really paying attention. And so now it's like, well, then who am I going to get at City Hall? Because your whole shtick, your whole ethos is that I'm just fun times guy. And now, I mean, he he went in. I mean, I think he landed a few few blows. And that's why some people thought he did really well. But in doing so... He sort of positioned us versus them. You've got people who care about, you know, disabled New Yorkers, care about New Yorkers with mental illness and mental health issues. And they're like, who is this guy talking about us versus them? And they, they using using the they, and I'll always get you in trouble. And that was, I think, shocking for some people who were tuning in. So did that open up a lane possibly for Maya Wiley, who has a very different public safety message, or Catherine Garcia, who's still... I don't know. I know she smokes cigarettes, but maybe she smokes other things. But she is floating above it all. I mean, listen. Well, if for for those of our listeners who watch reality TV, Catherine Garcia is doing what the successful folks do, and they like to ride the middle, right? When you come on like America's Next Top Model or you know Project Runway or whatever, you never want to be the superstar in the beginning, and you never want to be the loser in the beginning. Because if you're the loser in the beginning, you get ousted, and if you're the superstar in the beginning, people start gunning for you. You want to ride the middle until like the very last possible moment and then you sort of emerge. I think Catherine Garcia is hoping to do that. I mean, I, I need her to get a shot of adrenaline because that debate performance, I was like, I think I'm a little offended that she doesn't take campaigning in, I'm not saying she doesn't take it seriously, but I'm like, part of being a mayor isn't just actually being a technocrat. You actually do need to connect with people. And I don't think that she's like, that's not my thing. And I'm like, yeah, but I kind of need it to be your thing. It's a city of almost 9 million people. And like they need to feel like the mayor is like listening and hears them. I think it's interesting that Maya has like doubled down on the progressive message. If you're going to do it, do it, right? I mean, it's, they say if you're going to be a monkey, be a gorilla, right? Like double down on it. And 
this is not the time to waver on your progressive message, but I think it's a gamble. I think there are going to be some people who are like, yes, we actually have a progressive because Diane, Diane Morales' campaign is, I don't, I don't know who's working on the campaign. I, she's still qualified to be on stage. but A bunch of some, them are striking, and she fired a bunch of the others. I mean, so I don't know who's at the office, who shows up. Scott Stringer's had his own troubles, even though we'll get to him in a second. But Maya's like double down on that lane. And I think that the, she she gives New Yorkers a real option, especially the progressive New Yorkers. I think they're the loudest faction. I don't think they're the largest. I, I do think, though, she needs to help convince the progressive wing to sort of translate that activist spirit that we saw in June 2020 into an electoral spirit, June 2021. Um, now's not the time to sort of become mealy-mouthed about your messaging. She's like, no, this is what it is unequivocally so. I am your foil to Eric. Like if you, you know, but I can still deal with the NYPD and think seriously about crime and public policy. I mean, listen, you know, I, you know, I love, I, I love a good shank. And I mean, listen, when Scott Stringer said, this is a teachable moment <laughs> as an educator, because that's, that is a phrase that educators use all the time, especially when someone does something that is egregious or just straight up wrong. You know, I had to have my little petty moment of like, this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> because it is, you know, when he said, this is the, the most non-answer answer I've ever heard. That has been my frustration with Andrew Yang. It's musings. It's a whole bunch of sentences, nouns, verbs put together. But what are you actually saying about policy? Because you fundamentally don't understand how this city is run. Oh, and P.S. He did vote yesterday. So this would be the first time he's voted in two decades in a municipal election in New York City. Congratulations. Thank you. For weirdly, weirdly, his campaign keeps reminding me that he did vote in 2019. I can't remember what was on the ballot in 2019, but it will be his first time voting for a mayor, the office he's running for. He's done it and he voted, you know, for him. 2019? Yeah, I, I we, got me. I need receipts. Can the campaign, I'm sure they listen. Um, Chris Coffey, Bradley Tusk, Liz Smith, hit us up and let us know what he voted for in 2019. So, That'd be so interesting. with Maya, I, I think I think the fundamental obstacle she hit, and this got, they got there directly during one of the questions. And uh, you know, big shout out to uh, Politico New York, Sally Goldenberg, frequent uh, FAQ guest for, for for killing it as a moderator. Uh, but but the question was put to Maya: like you have this this long term plan for moving resources out of the NYPD and into communities. What are you going to do about this rise in gun violence and other things short term? And bravely or or stupidly or necessarily i'm honestly torn she's just like straight up nah that's the plan mm -hmm. so there was absolutely mm -hmm. no no bridge element or here are things we need mm -hmm. to enforce now or here's what we're going to do with guns it, it's we need to have trauma-informed care which is a phrase that if you recognize it you know right away but i think is brand new to a lot of new yorkers we need to have violence interrupters which is something de blasio has talked about a lot as violence has gone up and and it, it was just striking to to see her not do a to be sure or try to bridge that gap, but just straight up say that my short term plan and my long term plan are the same and they involve less policing in New York and in neighborhoods that have often been simultaneously, I think, over and under policed. Right. Well, you know, I'm curious, did Erica Ford endorse anyone? Because when I think of sort of violence interrupters, I think about the work that Erica Ford has done in Queens, right? Where it's like, hey, listen, let's not call the cops because when we have a situation in our neighborhood, we call the cops. Sometimes everybody ends up being dead, right? Because they come and 
sort of shoot first and, and ask questions later. So she takes formerly incarcerated individuals, people who have been in sort of, you know, gang-esque type situations, and they are the ones that sort of help negotiate uh, some of some of these tense situations in communities. And she's had amazing success. So I'm curious as to who's using her models, because I've definitely heard her name float around with candidates, but uh, I'm curious who she thinks is the best to implement this message. I mean, with Maya, it's, I think it's a really interesting gamble that I don't she's think so, taking. by the way, just checking, okay. just checking the Google. Right, because I don't think it was this debate, but one of the last debates, you know, the, there was a question of, you know, uh, for all the candidates, would you increase um, a police presence on the subway? You know, and some candidates said yes, and some candidates said no. And I think that that's a really telling question, largely because you can take good liberals, right? Not necessarily, you know, progressives, but just people who are on board with the progressive message. But they're also like, hey, now I got to go to this job and I'm sitting on this subway solo (laughs) or with a few other people mind him a business and there's someone who's on the subway and like I wouldn't mind a cop just kind of cruising through and you know doing a little spot check so that's really interesting when sort of these policy ideals are are really buttressing the sort of reality that a lot of New Yorkers have as they emerge back into a city that feels it feels a little it feels a little desperate You know, I mean, like, listen, whenever people are looking for jobs, you know that you're going to have some interesting spikes in crime and you're just going to have some some feelings of desperation, real or perceived. Um, And so I think that it's fascinating that Maya has kind of like doubled down with this progressive messaging where I think that there are a lot of people who would have been like, hell yeah, in 2020 are sort of like, that is interesting in theory. And I am not certain how I feel about it in practice. And we'll see if they go to the voting booth and just say, well, you know what, by January 1, if and when Maya Wiley is sworn in, we'll be in a different position and she can do this humanely and interestingly. Or if folks are saying, I don't know, maybe this is the time for me to sort of get with someone who is like, "Mm." (laughs) I'm not saying a cop on every corner, but I'm not not saying a cop on every corner. So there are these overlapping conversations in the debate, in part because the candidates would ignore the question that was asked, which Sally kept calling them out for, and answer the one they wanted to, about policing and public safety, about street homelessness, and about mental illness. And one thing that stood out to me as those happened was that only two of the candidates really focused in their answers on supportive housing. Uh, Catherine Garcia and then uh, Sean Donovan, to, to his credit, who's been doing a tour of that in the last days of the campaign and is certainly not going to be mayor. It's been a very weird cycle in that we're done with the debates now. And I don't believe the candidates have been pressed at all about what their plan would be for the Mm -hmm. next pandemic Mm -hmm. or the return of this pandemic after the year we've just been through with them not appearing in person or at all. And, you know, hopefully we're turning a corner. Cuomo announced that we're good. Science worked. My plans worked. And he had fireworks for what that is worth. I, I understand crimes are going up. Today is the 50th anniversary. Thursday is we're recording of Richard Nixon's speech introducing the war on drugs. And his rationale for the war on drugs is that in New York City, there were 200 or just less than 200 drug deaths in 1960. And there were more than 1,000 in 1970, which is less than we had in a day in New York, by the way, with this virus uh, as things were peaking. 
but but I, I could just sort of feel that this weird disconnect throughout this campaign between the issues we're talking about and that are pressing up now and mm-hmm. what this next mayor might need to deal with. I just want to throw in one more thing here, which is that the Wall Street Journal just announced they're ending their greater New York section next month, which is a real shame. And the insult to injury is announcing that. And some of our friends and colleagues there, including Katie Honand and Jimmy Vilkind. 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 It's, Vilkind. You have to say it with gravel, Vilkind. Including Katie Onan and Jimmy. And let me just say, up in Albany, the doing this right before the mayor's race says it all. And the fact that people are just starting to pay attention to Eric Adams, who's been one of the two leading candidates the whole time, and the queer winner in this home stretch, and to ask questions about him is very distressing. So Sally broke the story about this co-op in New Jersey that he was spending a lot of time in. There's a big one up at the city now about his real estate in Manhattan, and he swears he has receipts, but the receipts don't seem to exactly match up with his narrative. Eric did first a presser at the house he says he lives in with his son, um, has not done any mayoral forms or other things from. Um, He then did another press event where he said, uh, in effect, they're trying to do me like they did Obama which is doubly interesting because one of the people who's going at him the hardest has been Maya Wiley. And watching two leading black candidates trying to appeal to very different electorates, like go at each other that way and on on racial terms, I think is really striking. But we're just about there. We're all still catching up and starting to vet these people. and, And this is almost done. The last thing I'll say is if you haven't early voted, like early vote, because election day is going to be a motherfucker, right? You have a very complicated ballot. You have five choices in each of these races. Maya Wiley had to return her ballot when she early voted because lining up all the lines so you don't put two people on the number three line or whatever is actually difficult. Then you have judges' races. If you're a Manhattan district attorney's ones that aren't ranked choice, it's a lot to sort out. Do you really know your order, top five order, for your city council election? I'm working on it for mine. But like – it, well, it's going to be mean, another year. I just don't know if we're all the way prepared for, for setting up the future in the next decade in New York at this point. I just wanted to mention for you guys that uh, speaking of supportive housing, Bill de Blasio is currently moving 8,000 homeless people who found, you know, a, a type of supportive housing, a different kind of housing other than conglomerate shelters in hotels. And now he's trying to very quickly move them back to the shelter system, mm-hmm. a shelter system which several candidates have said that they want to move away from to supportive housing, which comes up in the mental illness debate. It comes up in the substance abuse uh, debate and it comes up in the homelessness debate is supportive housing. I am really interested in the fact that this isn't a bigger issue, but it's 20 years needed in the making. And a lot of people are, as you said, Chrissy, like they just want the crime solved now and not the hotel the- trade union. They backed uh, de Blasio. They backed Adams. They want to get back to work. The hotel owners want to get back to work. And if that means just getting rid of all these like inconvenient homeless people before finding any permanent solution and putting them back in a shitty and broken down shelter system, particularly for, you know, single men, they're just going to do that. And that is the most prominent example I can think of of just money talking and drowning out everything else. But I think what's so interesting thing, the interesting thing about this is as many forums and debates as we've had, I still don't think that any of the candidates have given a real substantive vision about what reducing homelessness really looks like. And I think we put it under the umbrella of, say, crime and public safety or like mental illness or domestic violence or whatever we say – in these forums, 
But this is clearly an issue that, you know, there are a myriad of New Yorkers that are trying to solve it from a lot of different angles. Let's be honest, we have some NIMBY issues that will constantly come up across all five boroughs. And I think a lot of the candidates, almost all of the candidates, have been able to hide behind kind of other rhetoric pointing to different things and not fully address this. That's and that's why. why Garcia and Donovan talking about supportive housing, which is a real answer and is really expensive. Right. right. And that, that's the downside. But, but, but straight up saying they were going to do this was impressive to me because everything else is sort of talking around the, the, the central issue. And I think that that's important for sure. However, they're also walking into a budget where de Blasio is essentially allocated like 99 percent of said budget. So you have you're almost ham. What is it? Hamstrung before you even get into the office because your predecessor has woken up from his senioritis and is like, oh, let me start putting money in various things. Great things, nonetheless. I think universal pre-K, 3K is, is is imperative. However, they don't have as much money walking into the job as they think they do. And that is a real, I would say, Achilles heel for a lot of the candidates who want to do really important, I'm using the word progressive or advancing policy, um, make policy decisions. But I don't know if they will have the money that they think they have. This was de Blasio's original sin in a very direct way, right? He wins. He gets 270,000 votes in a Democratic primary, breaks 40% and avoids a runoff before ranked choice voting. So that was still possible. Then he crushes perfectly competent Republican Joe Loda, who's now a Democrat, Mm -hmm. by the way. Uh, because no, 20 years of non-democratic mayors and people had enough. And he says, I have this sweeping mandate. His signature things are ending stop and frisk, which in an impressive way is sort of bullshit because it had already been reduced so dramatically by the Bloomberg administration in its last two years because they'd mm-hmm. overexpanded it, because legal pressure was building and other reasons. But, you know, m- most of that work had been done before he got there. And he wasn't a police reformer. He just wanted that one issue and, and got that. And then universal pre-K. His universal pre-K rap is for the price of a jumbo Starbucks a day or grande Starbucks, whatever they call it. You know, you can have this thing. So he wins and he turns to Albany and Governor Andrew Cuomo. And they're all up for election now, right? De Blasio's the new mayor. The legislature's up. The governor's up and so on. And says, you got to give me this tax. This is what I promised New York City. The governor and most of the lawmakers and not just the Republicans are like, no, we're running for re-election. We don't want to raise taxes, you know, not happening. And de Blasio plays this really hard. He gets a bunch of shady money from like the rich people who backed him and kicks it into different upstate races, gets investigated, you know, almost ends up getting charged. He says he was cleared by the federal and local prosecutors who like scolded him and say he violated the spirit of the law, but we can't quite bring charges. And everything went downhill from there. And the funny thing is, he got the program. And he rolled it mm-hmm. out beautifully. And it was a big thing, a boon for many New Yorkers. No one running for office this year. Maybe it was the responsible and the money isn't there. Maybe it was they lacked the vision as anything resembling universal pre-K as like their big signature proposal. Not even close. Mm-hmm. But he actually got it. He made it work. And because he's an ideologue and his first thing was the money part, and he didn't get the money, and he alienated Albany and Cuomo in trying to get the money, and got prosecutors on his tail, 
in trying to flip Albany after that happened, it really blew up the entire rest of his time in office, is, is, is my view. I, I do think that was his original sin. He also ha- ran on hospitals, not condos, protesting mm-hmm. the closure of a lot of the hospitals in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. which he didn't got follow himself up, arrested. Got himself arrested. Yeah. And he never followed up on that, which is one of the big reasons why we're in the uh, debacle that we're in now. I think, you know, Alex, mm-hmm. I think that that point is so important, especially since we're in the middle of a global pandemic, because that was one of de Blasio, you know, one of the bigger images that we saw that summer of 2013 was him getting arrested. And and sort of, I, I feel like it was like the adrenaline for his campaign before Stop and Frisk and before the Dante ad um, and all that went down. But bringing it back to 2021, you know, I'm always, I try not to, to do like that fantasy politics, you know, like hypotheticals. But I am really curious if this race were in September. I mean, Harry, listen, I I said this to you over text. I think that Sean Donovan and Ray McGuire would be in a really different position if this were a September primary. Because you can tell they're just now getting their sea legs. They're just now figuring out kind of the pace of a campaign. And although Eric Adams and Scott Stringer have been public servants for a very long time and they know what this looks like, Maya Wiley and Catherine Garcia have been up close to New York City politics, New York City politics. And so they kind of understand the pace in it in a different way. It's not the same as Eric and Scott, but they get it in a way that Ray McGuire and Sean Donovan have just, it's taken them a while, but there's something there, I think with both of them, that by September, they would have gotten, and I think that their vision would have been able to be articulated. I'm leaving Diane Morales and Andrew Yang out of that conversation, specifically and explicitly, because I just, I don't think that they would be in a different place in September, but I definitely think Sean Donovan and Ray McGuire would be. And P.S., Sean Donovan also got like a little bonus point in my heart last night in the debate when he said he'd bring Kamasi Washington, who I think is... (laughs) brilliant. Um, And I was like, he listens to Kamasi Washington? Maybe Sean Donovan's a little more interesting than I thought. And to me, it was really sad because I was like, you finally stopped leaning on Obama, 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 Obama. And we actually start to hear what Sean Donovan would do, not the fact that you work for Obama, 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 Obama. And now it's like, hey, I think it's too late. You should have told me about Sean Donovan way earlier than you told me about Obama. Catherine Garcia. I like her in certain ways. You too. Just put out as an oppo just put out as an oppo hit that she smokes a pack a day. God bless. That's the old New York. But let me just say, if you bring you two to your inauguration, you're dead to me. As she, she said she coming. would like to do. Not happening. I'm not coming. Like, who who wants to listen to you two? What year is it? Well, she said, I want to bring back the 80s. I was like, hey, in a debate about crime and public <laughs> safety, I don't think that your closing statement should be, I want to bring you two because I want to bring it back to the 1980s. Let's just let's stay away from the 1980s, shall we? Um, but yeah, I, I I definitely I definitely think that Donovan and McGuire could have been interesting. It's just the timing and the time, and also with crime and public safety dominating the conversation. I just don't think that they had a lane. You know, when when Donovan's essentially saying, I I understand the the larger macro web of local, state, federal politics. McGuire saying, I understand the economic web about how to get all these different players together. I am, though, interested in seeing, I'm really interested in McGuire, post-election McGuire, and how he serves on boards and how he uses his philanthropy now that he understands policy issues in a much more concrete way. 
I actually think that he's going to be an interesting force in the city moving forward. I'm not saying he's not going to win, but I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty good at this win. stuff. Like, you know, and also I think there's a, there's a role for Sean Donovan in public service, not necessarily as an elected position or maybe, you know, as a deputy mayor, but I do think that he has an understanding of certain things in a, in a macro sense. He just doesn't understand New York in the way that, he needed to articulate to to voters in a very limited amount of time. And he was like learning how to ride the bike while he's in the Tour de France. So, and that's what running for mayor in New York city really is. Um, but I'm, I'm curious as to Ray, when Ray did we'll one find thing out in the debate. What's that? Ray, Ray did one thing in the debate that, that, that really grabbed me. There were a couple moments where you, you got the sense of, of candidates who knew a lot more than they did when they started. Uh, Andrew oh, Yang yeah. briefly brought up the water tunnels and how those worked. had clearly been briefed on those. Shout out to our episode on them, which is with Ibrahim. Shout out to Ibrahim. Yeah. Abdul Mateen. Thank you for coming on. Come back. Come back. We got to talk some more water. And then Ray McGuire brought up Kendra's Law in a a interesting and substantial way that suggested he really knew what it was. And there's been a big range there, right? So so Diane Morales was on our podcast. She didn't know what Kendra's Law was. Uh, Andrew Yang has thrown it out, but he doesn't seem all that clear on what it is he's actually talking about. You know, he's like, hey, hospital beds, Kendra's Law. You know, we just get everyone off the streets. Uh, Eric Adams has sort of done similarly. But this is sort of a big, substantial thing to understand and to to navigate. It's a state law, but how it's functioned in the city has changed a lot over the years. I know, Alex, you had a few thoughts on that. Oh, just that, I mean, I think Ray McGuire actually, after he was talking to you and Chrissy on our show, went and got super briefed about it because he spoke about it so uh, interestingly, not in this debate, but in the one before it. But it's basically a court order, and it lapses, and it's not a catch-all, and it doesn't use police, but it uses mobile crisis teams. And during COVID, so many people who rely on this as a way to kind of keep track of the severely mentally ill or to help them or to reach out to them or to keep them on their medication, it really it kind of fell apart without in-person visits and proper amounts of follow-up. And it's a very complicated law that works strangely between the city and the state and oversight. Chrissy, this is the home stretch. Like, what are your thoughts and what should we be looking at and what are we looking at? Well, I think I'm going to put in a plug, Larry. Larry. (laughs) That was a Freudian slip. I'm sorry. I think I'm going to put in a plug, Harry, for the importance of local reporting. I mean, so many of the stories that we have about these candidates and why we even know minor and major policy positions or even personal quirks is because of local reporters. So like Wall Street Journal, I need you to get yourselves together because Katie Honan and Jimmy V are two of the best in the business. And the the fact that if you're going to cut anything, I don't understand why you're cutting local reporting in the middle of an election season. And it's the New York City mayor's race. Two, I want to give a shout out to Sally Goldenberg because some of the stories that Sally and her colleagues, obviously Sally would never take full credit, even though she deserves it. But like Sally and her colleagues have been diligently reporting even in the midst of like hate mail and gender bias and all types of wild nonsense they've had to deal with as reporters, just because they're trying to bring New Yorkers a more holistic picture of what the field looks like. So I can't stress enough, you know, we need to be supporting uh, our local journalists. I mean, we know that the size of the the New York City 
local pack just keeps getting smaller and smaller every year. And I'm not a journalist. I don't even pretend to be one, but I, I've spent enough time with you guys and I have the utmost respect for what you all do. It's a public service. It's a different type of public service um, other than politicians in, in trying to bring us this information. So I say all this. One, we're going to be with our friend Ben Max from the Gotham Gazette on election night, June 22nd. We'll tape it. Adam will work his magic. Boom. June 23rd will drop. But we probably won't know anything. Maybe a little bit about the Manhattan DA's race, which is getting pretty ugly. But other than that, the ranked choice pieces, we won't really know. So I guess we'll, it's just going to be a, a stay tuned and a wait and see. But it's been... It's been a, a good season. I feel like I've learned a lot. And I, I think a lot of the candidates have learned a lot. And I'm really actually looking forward to having a lot of them back on the podcast once we know sort of where they are uh, and whether they've lost or they've won or, you know, whether they're going to run on a third party if they can do some some weird finagling. But I think a lot of them do care about the city. And I'm really actually excited to see what they plan to do, either working with the 110th mayor or, or becoming a foil to the 110th mayor. Listeners, vote early if you can. Election night, which is usually sort of pro forma, is going to be a bizarre disaster because we're not going to know who's won. Isn't and it a beautiful mess, Harry? Speeches. It's going to be a mess, that much I'm sure. Beautiful. Isn't it a beautiful mess? I thought that was the phrase. <laughs> the beautiful mess. As uh, You had a beautiful mess and you had the, the mess of the bar scene in the 90s. It's been a big year for messes. Um, but, but the thing to do is to uh, zone all that out, vote early, listen to uh, Professor Greer and Ben Max break down what we do and don't know. Uh, and that will be waiting for you the following morning. And uh, we'll see you there. And then I have all these things once we get past this election. Sorry, Curtis Liu. I don't don't really think the general is going to matter. Um, that, that are going to be fun and exciting. Um, and let us get deeper into some of these things. Like, uh, like Kendra's Law. Like different street and photography scenes. Like doctors dealing with the pandemic. Hopefully another musical episode. So it's been, a, it's been an incredible ride up till now. Thank you so much for listening. And please do shout out to Preet. Stay tuned. Uh, there's more to come. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan and the great state of Arizona. A special thank you to our guests this week. No one. Our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Wear a mask. Be well. And we will see you after Election Day. Come back, come back. We got to talk some more water. Um, and then, did you say then, water? <laughs> water. I did. Mayor, I, I water. Drink water. I'm, I'm gonna have a whole Harry Siegel dictionary. And, and then, Mayor, M A R E. You were the one who uh, originally did that. Say again. You were the one who originally said water that way. What? I say water? How do I say Go water? Go listen to the episode. You do it. <laughs> water. Okay, so now we've got to, well, now we got to replay Chrissy Greer and Harry Siegel water. And today we have Ibrahim Abdul-Mateen, an old friend and a master of all things New York City water. Welcome. Um, I'm honored to be here. I love the irreverence and the silliness that has accompanied this introduction, and I'm really excited to talk about water. Water.
At least it's not soda. Oh, goodness, no. 